for four years, between 1969 and 1973, there was an underground group in Chicago of women who were breaking the law. They were helping desperate other women who needed, wanted abortions. This is before Roe versus Wade, Supreme Court decision that made abortions legal. These are women at the beginning, mostly middle class in Chicago. And the name of the group was Jane. And it's a thrilling, it's a very dramatic tale of this group, these four years of being outside the law and running all sorts of risks. And Laura Kaplan's written the book. It's sort of a collective memoir of herself and other members of that group. It's called The Story of Jane. And the name of Jane is interesting. Choosing that was the code name. And, but the subtitle is The Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service. How does this story begin? Well, the story begins in, in the late 60s. Really, the story begins, not the book itself, but the story begins in the movements, the social movements of the 1960s, because it was those women who were involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and the student movement who first raised the issue of women's subservient role. And it was those women who got together and started talking about women's issues with each other. And out of that, the women's liberation movement was born, and various projects, Jane, one of them, uh, were also born. Now, that group came to being. There was this need, this felt need. Uh, by the way, abortion in many of the peace groups as well as civil rights groups uh, was not considered that important. It was important, of course, but not considered paramount. So, and so the women went off on their own to some extent. Is that it? Well, I think in those movements, women's issues of any kind were not considered paramount or even uh, of any interest. Um, I think the initial response when women raised these issues within, within the movement, within the left, was uh, derision and hostility um, so that women felt they had to have their own movement to address these concerns. So who are these women? Now we come, how it came to be itself in Chicago. I know you use pseudonyms for everyone. Right, right. You are Katie. Well, Kate. In, in, Kate, rather. <laughs> I didn't mean to make that diminutive, it would sound patronizing. <laughs> so start specifically, okay. specifics, how it um, happened. There was a woman who was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, who I call Claire, was a longtime activist um, in the civil rights movement, had spent the summer of 1964 in Mississippi for Freedom Summer. And when she came back from Freedom Summer, shortly after she came back, she got a call from a friend who was another student um, saying that his sister was pregnant and desperately needed an abortion. Could she help? Could she try to find somebody? So she started calling around. She thought, well, let me see what I can do. And she talked to her own gynecologist. She asked. She could find nothing. And finally, through her civil rights network, she found a black doctor on the south side in Woodlawn who was performing abortions, and he was willing to do it. The woman went. The abortion was successful. Everything was fine. A short time later, she got another call. This time the call came from Mississippi, from a young woman, Mississippian, she had met during the Civil Rights Movement, who was desperate and needed an abortion. Um, she didn't think she could find one that wouldn't kill her in Mississippi, so she wanted to come to sh Chicago. Claire arranged it. It was fine. Over the next few months, many, many more she calls came. She pointed out primarily 
middle class, were they not, these women? Not the, the woman from Mississippi. The woman who was a s- student, yes, was a middle yeah, class right. college student at the University of Chicago, but the second woman was a poor yeah. black woman from yeah. Mississippi. But so now these women realize now, of course, what they're doing is illegal, right? Well, I think Claire felt that because she was within the safety of the movement. Mm-hmm. It didn't really, she knew that she was breaking the law, but it didn't really strike her that she was involved in criminal activity. You said the safety of the movement. Now, there's one aspect of this that's remarkable to me. There were hundreds of women passed through these portals. So to speak. <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> Whether it be motels or, or private apartments, and there were gatherings and meetings. There was no betrayal at any one time, was there? No, surprisingly, there was no betrayal. We kept expecting that. We thought someone, uh, you know, a police informer would join the group. Um, somebody in the group would get upset about something and um, rat on us, to use the terminology of the time. But none of that ever it happened. happened. No. Now, you, now, the, the uh, dramatus personae, the cast of characters, you, there were, you mentioned Claire, who was very Jenny who was suffering from Hodgkin's disease, right, right. who, by the way, survives today. That's true. In the middle of all. And you named the various people who were involved, old-timers, and the new ones came in. Right. How did it work? How are their meetings held? They were, they were like private meetings in different apartments? Is that it? Yeah, we met approximately every 10 days in someone's apartment. And you knew from one meeting or from someone who would call you when the next meeting was. we meet in the evenings, and we drink tea and coffee and eat cookies and talk about what business we had to accomplish. Now, the name of, how did they get in touch? Now we come to the name of Jane. Okay. Now, Jane is sort of an eponymous name, Jane. In the old slang days, a woman was called a Jane, so, as well as a dame. There's two guys, and who is the Jane? Right, so, right. So, before like my Jane. time. What's that? <laughs> before my time. Yeah, I say before. But, so the word Jane became the code word, is it not? Right, right. It became, we wanted, the official name of the group was the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation. But we needed a uh, one-word p- person's name as a contact name so we could call women and say, this is Jane. And they would know what the call was about. And so that they would have some security in knowing they were, ca- they were calling a person. I know. See, again, I'm, I'm astonished by the fact that the, nobody thinked, nobody informed these are strangers calling. This is Jane. Right. And they know now the code. And the number was 6433844. Right. That's the number. That became almost the code number is in many circles. So now we come to the actual abortions themselves. Where, who were the, you mentioned a black doctor. Now came, it becomes something of a mystery, like a detective story. You met Guys, you're afraid might be mafia people right, right. involving illegal abortion. Why don't you explain that? Well, the situation for women at that point was that if they needed an abortion, it was very, very difficult to get a legal abortion. It re- required a hospital board approval, which was uh, not usually forthcoming at all. And otherwise, it required traveling either out of the country or into an uncertain underground where you didn't know what you were going to find. You didn't know what you were going to find medically uh, physically, emotionally, in any way, what kind of exploitation you were opening yourself to. And each woman was on her own and was really as much of a helpless victim as a person could be in that situation. So what this group and other groups around the country tried to do was really monitor that underground system. So the first job was to find out the names of the people who were doing it. 
And that was, some of them came from, Claire had come up with a few names in the Claire, course. Claire, one of the veterans. The early organizer yeah. of this group. And I have to say, she organized the group and then she left. She was moving on to other organizing work. She wanted to do more explicitly political organizing work and not so much hands-on service-oriented work. Um, some names came from the grapevine. Somebody had an abortion. Somebody knew somebody who had an abortion. One came from a doctor's receptionist. And so the group's job was to contact these people, try to find out what their deal was. And you have to remember that the women in this group knew very little about abortion or medical care or anything. So this is also a story of learning. Exactly. These women changed. They were helping others, worried, but something was happening to them because eventually some of them themselves were able to perform it, were they not? Right, right. In the matter of midwives, is that it? Uh-huh. They were learning from... These doctors, by the way, there were no, no women doctors I mentioned here. No women doctors. There weren't many women doctors back then. You know? There was a great doctor from the hospital yes. in, the, in Mac, Mac, Beatrice Tucker. You heard right. of Beatrice Tucker? Oh, absolutely. She um, handled home births in the city of Chicago in that neighborhood for many, many, many years. She was a hero to many women yeah. in the city home of Chicago. Home deliveries. Right. And Beatrice Tucker was a pioneer. Right. You do know of her, mm -hmm. but she was one of the very rare. Right, women. right. And there was Dr. Lonnie Myers, who was one of Dr. the Lonnie Myers, too. most active doctors in um, abortion rights work at the time. But now we come to the doctors. Now, how did you get in touch with certain of these doctors? There's this great story of a guy named Nick. Right. Who was really a guy named Dr. Kaufman, who was really unlicensed. Right. What, tell that story. Well, one of the names that we got, that the group got, now I'll say we, even though I wasn't in the group at the time, that's okay, isn't it? I take that license. One of the names we got um, from Claire, from her network, was this Dr. Kaufman who worked out in Cicero, out of motels. And the initial members of the group felt that one thing they really wanted to do was gain some leverage and control over these doctors so that women wouldn't be helpless victims. And to do that, they felt they had to meet with these men and try to negotiate with them. And they thought, they knew enough about business to think, well, the way we'll get some leverage is we'll say, we're a powerful organization, we've got a lot of business, and if you want some, you're going to have to do things our way. Of course, none of that was true at the time. They didn't have a lot of phone calls. They were not a powerful organization. Um, only one person was willing to meet with them, and that was Dr. Kaufman. He was willing to send his middleman, Nick to meet with one of them. Only one, he said, yeah. because any more than two people talking could be considered a conspiracy. A number of the doctors w were sympathetic but scared, I take it. Yeah, or were willing to take risks for other issues, but not for this one, mm. you know. Um, but I think that they were doctors with a, a progressive attitude, really felt under siege in the Chicago Medical Association. And so some of the doctors who were considered progressive doctors were a bit shy of this because they had enough <laughs> Give me crosses to bear. That's right. <laughs> All right. So um, there was an initial meeting between a, a woman who became one of the mainstays of the group named Jenny mm. and Nick out on the street in Hyde Park at night in which they were able to come to some agreements about price and other issues that now were Now that's the other thing. Now you, how do you know you were, some of you guys charged 600 bucks or so and some of the women uh, naturally couldn't afford it. So you would bargain with the doc. Right. 
And you worked out, listen, we're giving you plenty of trade here. Right, right. And so you can lower the rate. Somebody right. give us a freebie. Right, right. That was part of it. And most of them, and this man in particular, was willing to make those kinds of deals. He'd do so many at full price and then one for free. If it was a real desperate case was the language he would use, you know, somebody who was really desperate. But now we come to something. Of course, the story here, the story here is learning. Right. We're in the group. We're changing. Now, many, a number were watching the doctor at work, helping him, doing what perhaps a, a nurse or an aide might do. That was a later stage through a series of fortuitous circumstances, and shall we say. Those? Well, there was an incident. Um, this uh, Dr. Kaufman was working out of motels in Hyde Park, uh, primarily at that point with his nurse, Denise. And during one of these abortions that Jane had arranged, uh, the woman's husband showed up and started pounding on the door and and yelling, come out of there, you baby killer, and screaming in the hallway, he's killing my wife, he's killing my wife. The doctor managed to escape and flee through Hyde Park, and when he um, had evaded his pursuer, he called Jenny, and she came and pick him up, picked him up, and when she did, she saw that the out-of-breath and terrified man who got in her car was actually Neck, the middleman, the man she'd been negotiating with. At that point, it became clear to Jenny what was going on here, and she, she uh, encouraged him to allow her to then attend uh, the abortion, something women from the group had wanted to do from the beginning to assure good treatment of women. Now, when they, we want to come to cops in a minute. That's very interesting. There's an ambivalent air here involving police, yeah. many of whose women, whether they be wives or daughters or girlfriends, needed it. But come to them. That should, and the interrelationship to the police, I think, is a very fascinating one. But stick with Jenny for a minute, who's the first one to learn to do it. She, did, she was helping Dr. Kaufman. And when she discovered he's unlicensed, though did the job well, says, if this guy could do it, we can do it. That became one of the themes, was it not? Right, right. And not only can we do it, but we can charge a lot less because money was always yeah. one of the major sources of arguments because so many of the women who contacted us, I mean, I'm sure you remember $500 was a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now. We're talking, but there were four years. This, it this was, is all pre Roe versus Wade. Right. 1969, following 68. That's rather interesting. Right. You find out earlier that. This whole movement was related to the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, right. and this followed the tumultuous year of '68. So, for three years, for four years, you were in existence as underground group. Call me Jane. <laughs> yeah, just say Jane. Right. And that magic number. Well, one of uh, one of the stories I tell in the book, the story of Jane, is of um, a young woman who was a um, high school teacher who knew thought she needed an abortion, thought she was pregnant, called a friend who worked at, who was an intern at Cook County Hospital, and said, what do I do? And he said, he talked to everybody on the staff, and they said, call Jane, she'll take care of you. And, and when she told me the story, she said, he didn't know how true that was. As it turned out, she didn't need an abortion, but she did wind up joining the group. How did you become part of Jane? I moved back to... Uh, Chicago. I had gone to school at the University of Chicago and graduated in 69, moved back to New York City, which is where I was from. And in 71, in the fall of 71, I moved back to Chicago, hoping to get involved in the women's movement. 
And right after I moved back, my very close friend from college got pregnant on an IUD that happened to have been inserted incorrectly. Um, she was frantic. She had just graduated from college. She was working two jobs. She was in a new relationship. There was no way she was going to have a child. And she found Jane's phone number. And after her abortion, she came to see me. And she was so excited and energized by an illegal abortion, which seems so odd to us today, that um, she excited me. And she took yeah. me to meet her counselor. And um, they were starting a training Wait, session. How many women passed through? the halls were members of Jane at one time or another. Well, I don't know exactly yeah, because we I kept mean, no records, but there were between 100 and 120 women and during those four years. that was undergoing a change, too. Some, now, young, originally there were sort of middle-class wives or independent career women, originally, and then became younger. Let's take our first break. We have to, to we'll resume with Laura Kaplan, who's this fascinating book called The Story of Jane. And I don't mean Jane Austen either. And the legendary underground feminist abortion service, an underground movement, a pantheon. Laura Kaplan, and the book is The Story of Jane. And the subtitle is The Legendary, and it's certainly that, Underground Feminist Abortion Service. And so... Here's how it began at, at the University of Chicago. By the way, did Jane spread out into other cities? No, it didn't. It was always just a Chicago organization, but it did uh, change so that it wasn't so Hyde Park-based. For instance, I lived on the north side, and many, many of Jane's members lived on the north side, in the suburbs, all over Oak but Park. But there were some women, though, outside Illinois, outside Chicago, heard about Jane, didn't Yeah, they? women came from all over the Midwest and um, Kentucky and Tennessee and sometimes quite so far away. So what did you do when some of the young, mostly young women in trouble, pregnant, wanted abortion, needed it, uh, didn't have the amount of dough? Did you, did you sort of... Weren't able to carry them over? Um, it depends on what point in the group's evolution we're talking about. We always, the, the, the way the group was organized was that two members were the doctor contacts, and they did the negotiation with the doctors, and they really pushed on them heavy to get reduced fees and to get less money. We also raised money from other women to pay for women's abortions who didn't have the money. And at a certain point, we asked women to give us an extra $25 so that we could put that towards women who couldn't even come out mm. up with a reduced amount. So we did everything we could to ensure that as many women as possible had access to safe abortions. And at this time, of course, they could have gone to uh, London, or they didn't have the dough, you know, or right. to Mexico, or for that matter, New York, because New York was liberalizing. So that happened in the summer of 1970, yeah. and that changed things oh, radically yeah. for women all over the country because for not much money in Chicago, yeah. including airfare, it was yeah. about $300. You could fly to New York, get an abortion in the early stages of pregnancy, under 10 weeks, and then fly back the same day. But I'm thinking about the women of this group. You, you just touched on a couple of them. They're all variety, weren't they? Yes. Uh, different temperament and all. And... Something happened to them during this that almost to all, without exception, their own awareness that they could do it, right. what the doctor did. And in, in the tradition, I suppose, of midwives. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that sense 
that we could do what we didn't think we could do, that we were competent people because we acted competently, we were responsible people because we were willing to take responsibility, uh, really pervaded in our whole lives. And everything we sought to do after that and during that time, we discovered, I think it's what every parent wants their child to discover, is that we could make um, our lives be what we wanted them to be. We could, if we could get access to the skills and the knowledge, we could take charge of our own lives. And we wanted to impart to the women who saw us that same exhilaration, that same feeling. So we spent a lot of time on education. Uh, the one you called Jenny, who had Hodgkins, who's still around and about and active. Still kicking. Uh, she, she's the, about the first one to learn. She did it. She decided to do it. If Nick alias Dr. Kaufman or Kaufman alias Nick could do it. She, she was the first of the group. Yeah, well, her feeling really was not just that I can learn to do this, but we can learn to do this. You know, I, and by extension, everyone in this group, and it didn't turn out to be everyone in this group, of course, but that was her thinking, that it's us, not just her alone, um, can learn to do this. But it was also very terrifying. I mean, we yeah. were breaking a taboo that was not only a medical taboo, but in those days, women were really raised to believe they were secondary people, that they weren't competent people, that they couldn't do so many of the things that men could do. Um, we really internalized a lot of those messages. So it was a consciousness expanding experience for the women who joined this group as well, as you say, and it was she, very transforming. Well, you had some among men, you had certain allies, specifically, uh, Harris Wilson, who was the dean of Rockefeller Chapel, was he not? Right. Huh? Yes, he that's a pseudonym. And uh, Howard was. Moody of that a very progressive, advanced, unconventional church Judson in New Memorial York. Church. Now, they York. were pretty active, weren't they? Right. Uh, Howard Moody, earlier on in the 60s, had started the first clergy consultation service on abortion. He had organized clergy in New York City to um, counsel women, to monitor the underground and seek out the best practitioners and send women to them. He was, once New York legalized abortion in this July of 1970, he was instrumental in setting up one of the better uh, freestanding abortion clinics as well. He inspired ministers across the country to set up similar services, which is what he did um, with the man I call Harris Wilson in the story. He said to Harris, can't keep sending everybody to New York, you gotta do this yourself in Chicago, and Harris said, Okay. And he called together a bunch of ministers and rabbis in the Midwest, and they organized a similar service here. They put themselves on the line, too. Yes. To a great extent. Yes, but they had the moral authority of organized religion, um, which the women's liberation groups did not have. Which leads us to the interesting question of the police. Now, I find that there was, a, in many cases, there was a sympathy, a sympathetic attitude. Yeah. Toward, toward uh, the group. Yeah, well, this is our suspicion. I mean, I don't know for a fact. All of this is just sort of um, what I can suss out from what people have to say. But it seemed as if um, the police knew about us, and yet were leaving us alone. I, I, I don't know if this is no, true, but... No, it probably has to do, you may not even have the dope on it, but the, some of the women of their household. Exactly. Claire, the awareness when, of it. when she was doing these referrals alone, ad hoc, she started noticing that quite a few of them were policemen's wives and girlfriends and daughters. And she started suspecting that if it seemed logical to her that if the police were sending their family members, that they weren't going to arrest her. And they might, in fact, 
be watching out for her. Um, and that continued on when the group was organized, but we were always well aware uh, that we could be arrested at any time. Um, there were, we suspected that our phones were tapped. Um, we, several members of the group uh, were at anti-war demonstrations when members of the Red Squad mm-hmm. Do I need oh, to they explain? take part in it too? Well, yeah. they just remember that members yeah. of the Red Squad called out to them, mm-hmm. hi, Jane, and I, should I explain what the Red Squad, you want, you explain what the Red Squad was. So that's it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of their activities. Well, I meant way. for your listeners. But c- coming back to, to the group, and so there was an arrest. There was a big bust. Yes, in May of... Explain that one. In May of 72, what we found out later, at the time we didn't know how it happened, but we found out later that a relative of a, of a woman scheduled for abortion went with her uh, relative for the counseling session, didn't like what she heard, and went to the police. And so the day this woman was scheduled, the police had the address, and I have to explain this, we used a staging area, which we called the front, which was another apartment where we had people gather with their support people before their abortions. And from there, they were driven to another apartment, just the women having abortions, um, where they would get the, uh, get the abortion. So the police followed, went to the front and followed the car to the workplace back and forth a couple of times. And in the middle of the day, they broke in. Um, we were very lucky in that no one was in the middle of having an abortion. A few women were just finished, and one woman was about to get started. So in terms of medical safety, uh, that was very fortunate. Uh, seven women were arrested. The police took everybody from the workplace and everybody from the front, which was men and women and children, you know, lots of people down to the police station. The arrested women spent the night in the lockup, in the women's lockup, and were bailed out the next day. Um, The group went quasi more underground for a few weeks, and then when we found out uh, through our lawyer uh, and her police contacts that there was no grand plan to get us, um, we went back fairly quickly within a month or two into our regular mode of operation. But in that period of time when we had 250 women waiting for abortions that we felt responsible for, The uh, Harris-Wilson's clergy group in in Chicago was very helpful, and several of the legal clinics in Washington, D.C. and New York City offered to provide free abortions to our women if we could get them there. So we got people on planes to New York and and D.C., and I think it was a a really wonderful thing that they did to help these women in Chicago. This this was all going, and by the way, you also were aware that time was coming when the Supreme Court would be dealing with it. That led eventually to Roe versus Wade. But before Roe versus Wade, which in a sense legalized abortions, not in a sense did, uh, your group was doing stuff that was not uh, technically, to put it mildly, legal. And so there were risks. So, by the way, that arrest, though, had sort of humorous uh, overtones. Deborah was allowed to go ahead and get off, wasn't she? And there's a judge there, too. See, there seemed to be uh, some understanding among judges and lawyers in this case uh, that, that how can we handle this thing? It's pretty delicate. I'm sure it had to do with the fact that in their household somewhere or in their world of associations, there were women who had troubles. Well, I think more so in this case was the fact that Deborah's husband was a lawyer, so there was some commonality of of, uh, experience between the judge, who was also a lawyer, and the husband of the defendant, so to speak, who was a lawyer. So there was a a class identification 
that made things easier. And the lawyer's plan was that they would try to get Deborah out because she was a nursing mother at the time um, and because her husband, who was a lawyer, was there. So they would get a low bail for her so that the next day, uh, when the state's attorney tried to set a high bail for the other women, he wouldn't be able to. And in fact, that plan worked. But the thing is, it's funny, she was let go and she wanted to go back to be with her friends. They said, you go. help us. But to me, the judge is funny. Why don't you read that? Uh, set the scene for that. About Deborah thought how bizarre. The lawyer and the judge were talking. Why don't you set the scene for that or read some part of that? Okay. Um, this happened, this was um, about 2 or 3 a.m. The women had been arrested at about 2 p.m. the preceding afternoon. It was... Um, almost midnight when they were locked up. So this is several hours later. They're in adjacent cells. Um, Deborah is taken out of her cell and meets with the attorneys who set up this plan where they're going to get her out so they can get a low bail for her. She, there are uh, seven people arrested. Seven right? women arrested yeah. in adjacent cells okay. in the Cook County lockup. Um, okay, let me start with the paragraph above, okay? So Deborah agrees to leave, and this is what happens next. A patron put Deborah in a holding pen like a barred cage with two teenage white girls, both drunk. They had been arrested for stealing a television set. One of them was dressed up teetering on high heels. The other wearing jeans was five months pregnant. Her arms were scarred from needle marks and stitches where she had slashed herself in suicide attempts. For what seemed like hours, the three women talked and waited in that cage. Eventually, they were taken down to night court in an iron elevator. As Deborah walked into the courtroom, Mark, her husband, and Dan, his partner, whispered to her, You are Mrs. So-and-so, the wife of a lawyer. You're going home to your baby. This man is going to let you go home to your baby if you are nice to him. She couldn't believe that these two men she had known for years were talking to her as if she were a two-year-old. The judge said, Mrs. So-and-so, how are you? I'm not too well. I've been locked up upstairs and I'm very tired. I was in the police station a long time. How are you? Well, he said, I hate night court. Deborah thought, how bizarre. He's talking to me as if we're sitting at the same table at Cousin Sophie's wedding. I think we can get you out of here very quickly. You'll go home to your baby. And then he said a low bail, just as the lawyers had predicted. Deborah sat down and the judge started the next case, the two teenagers. He bellowed at them, all right, what about you girls? He noticed Deborah still sitting, and once more the kindly uncle said, Mrs. So-and-so, you don't have to sit through this. You can go. As the doors closed behind her, Deborah went into a kind of shock. They fucked the teenager over, and they let me go, which was a very interesting lesson for me. She was real small, and she was wearing cheap clothes and had a southern accent. She was a kid and pregnant, for Christ's sake. There's nobody there to help her, and there's me with all these lawyers, nursing mother of the year. I was so ashamed. I hated the judge for that. It's a revealing sequence because even though you were in jailbirds, you were of a different class. Exactly. The uh, wife of a lawyer, uh, middle class, where the two girls, both white kids, but class was it, the two girls were treated like dirt. You right. See, and, nothing, and whereas Deborah treated like, quote unquote, lady which is rather interesting, see. Yeah, so women made all sorts of discoveries, didn't they? Well, and these discoveries, I mean, anyone who has their eyes open in any city in the country or any rural area will see these discrepancies and imbalances everywhere around them. The story of Jane, Laura Kaplan is my guest, and it's the Underground Feminist Abortion Service in Chicago. <laughs> That's interesting, that here in this city, 
where the 1968 convention occurred and where soon will be one this year, uh, this happened. There's no, no doubt it came out of the other movements, did it not? Yeah. So we come back to the subject of trust. This is one of the big things. Trust and learning from one another. Because each were obviously of different, even those most middle class, they were poor and others, but they were different personalities and temperaments. Right, right. Did you have conflicts within the group now and then? Oh, there were a lot of conflicts within the group um, because there was such a diverse group of women, even though we were all, we weren't all white women, but uh, the overwhelming majority of the women in the group were white. Um, most of us were college educated. Most of us were middle class, although there were working class women in this group as well. So in terms of demographics, we were similar, but we came to it from very, very different places. And um, inevitably, in any group, there are going to be personality conflicts and uh, value conflicts and all kinds of things. But the but thing that kept us going and kept us united was the work and the women whose the women we were helping, and we could see that concretely every day. Every time I counseled somebody in my home, I could see the difference I was making. Yeah. And that can certainly, you can put up with a lot of stuff when you have that in your life. Uh, did, now, now, what changes occurring? They have a certain age, many married or career women, then younger people, isn't it toward 1972, 73, Starting 18, 19, 20-year-olds entered the scene. Yeah, starting in, 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 in the spring into the summer and the fall of 1971, um, the balance of power in the group started shifting by that winter of 71, 72. The balance of power in the group started shifting from the, and I have to say this in quotes, sort of Hyde Park housewives, but you know, more bohemian mm. in the style of Hyde Park, the university community, um, housewives to younger single women who were part hippies, part radicals, um, could live on very little, um, and had a lot of time and energy to devote to the group. So there was a, a shift within the group. So what happened there? Was there a change in there, an attitude in the group? Because now you had, I can imagine the scenes of some of the housewives, not prissy, but active and uh, well-meaning and anti-war and, and uh, anti-Jim Crow or pro-civil rights. And here come the kids. Every, wasn't there a change in attitude? Was there more defiance now or...? No, I think the group had evolved to such a radical place that um, we, who joined then late in 71, um, we didn't have to go through any process of accepting. Mm -hmm. We already knew what the group was doing, that mm -hmm. women at that point were performing the abortions. We could accept all that, whereas the women who had joined before that, who were slightly older and really sometimes not that much older, but just in a different mm -hmm stage of their lives, married, many of them with yeah. children, had to grow into that. I think there was so much respect yeah. between the younger women and the, and so the married women, women, so that you didn't see those kind of conflict arising. There were women in their 40s and maybe one who was in her late 40s in this group, and there was more, um, we, even if we didn't sometimes yeah. like each other, we really respected the key each word, other. The key word of both is trust. Absolutely. Trust is a thing. And right. Throughout, that pervades this story, it's almost a saga. It's a, the word fronts, we, when you said fronts, now we have to come back to how it worked. What do you mean you used fronts? Um, 
Do you want me to explain this, our whole method of operation? Why not? Yeah, okay. it'd be kind of good. What we had was we had a tape set up, an answering machine. And in those days, answering machines were very, very rare. So no one had personal answering machines. We had this huge machine, which Nick, our uh, doctor slash abortionist, had given us. And we had a tape that said, this is Jane from Women's Liberation. If you need assistance, leave your name and number. Then we had someone in the group who identified herself as Jane, who called the women back, uh, got basic information, turned it over to another person who was the maid administrator, the person we called Big Jane. Um, that person wrote out three by five cards for each woman. And then at meetings and over the phone, Big Jane passed out those cards and we picked, those members picked women to counsel. We called those women up. We invited them to our homes in the evening, and in those sessions, we explained everything they'd need to know. We gave them uh, newsprint copies of Our Bodies Ourselves and the Birth Control Handbook for free. Um, we did a lot of education about how your body works, um, how conception works, um, and, of course, how abortion works. And we got women to talk about their feelings and any questions they had and explained everything that would happen to them the day of their abortion, not only the technical steps, but who would they they would see and where they would go. And we would say, the night before your abortion, I will call you and I'll give you the name of a place which we call the front. Nothing happens there. You go there. You can bring anybody you want. Please bring somebody with you for support. It's a house or apartment that belongs to one of us. So that day, 25 women and their support people or 30 women and their support people and sometimes their kids, if they couldn't get childcare, would show up at a place where there was food and there were a couple of counselors to answer their questions. The women from out of town came directly there and were counseled there. And then during the course of the day, one of us would drive like five women from the front to the apartment we were using as a workplace and back again after their abortions where they'd be reunited with their family members or friends and then go on their way. The counselor would then keep in touch with them for a week to two weeks afterwards to make sure that they had recovered and had no problems. So that's and, basically and how so it that's worked. How, and there also, were, I suppose, the division that, of tasks also, division of labor. Right, right. Certain people, Deborah did one job, Maria, or whoever it was, Cynthia, right. all the different jobs. Right, it? and those changed around because yeah. we rotated those jobs somewhat. So they became, in a sense, as someone said, when there were hearings in New York, that's here from the real experts. And they that's became right. the experts. What were the, well, now we come to a question, many were married, well, what were the husband's roles in this? And there were different reactions here too, weren't right, there? Right, right. Uh, many of the husbands and boyfriends were extremely supportive. Um, I think they felt that they were tangentially involved in something very exciting and they could help. Sometimes they drove women to the bus station or the train station or they delivered emergency medications or when fronts were at their house, they'd socialize with the guys, you know, play cards or talk sports or whatever guys do with each other. Um, so they acted in that way. Some men were, were rather resentful of the amount of time um, the service was taking in their wives' and girlfriends' lives, and that came out in uh, trying to undermine their wives' or girlfriends' involvement. But for the most part, the men were extremely supportive. But this, so there was an underground at the same time the grapevine was rather broad one. Right. But why weren't there? Good question. It seems a good question, since <laughs> I'm asking. Why weren't there groups such as this formed in other cities? I can't quite understand. There that. were counseling and referrals groups in every city. 
and every college campus and some of the ones in the Midwest sent women to us. Mm. Why we evolved the way we, do, we did, I don't know if it has something to do with what's in the drinking water in Chicago <laughs> or whether I think it really had to do with um, the close relationship that Jenny was able to develop with Nick. Jenny is a key figure in this. Jenny is a key figure and a key her. figure in this group. But she had Hodgkin's disease. Well, did she suffer now and then during the, the, these four years? Yes, yes. She's, oh, she's had recurrent problems her whole life from the Hodgkins. You have an epilogue at the end, and you tell her, she's around and about, still active. Around and about, still active. Maybe she would say therapy is this activity. What happened to the various women? Well, um, we did organize in the spring of 1973 when the first legal clinics opened. Um, we went out of business and um, as Jane, but we did organize a women's health center that was in operation in the city for, I think, eight or nine years called the Emma Goldman Women's Health Center, which was on the north side. And some of the members, we were also at that time doing leading women and their bodies classes in the, some of the public schools in the city, and a few of the members continued to do that mm. for quite a number of years, specifically in Metro High School, which I guess doesn't exist mm. anymore. Um, but women generally went back to their lives. There were school teachers in this group. They went back. They continued being school teachers. Well, they were pretty changed, but they were changed people, weren't they? Yes, I think all of us felt more competent, stronger, more able to be the kind of people we and wanted to be. a good number of them, Jenny, an early member, one of the founders of Jane, is going to, when watching Nick, Dr. Kaufman, now she's going to take a whack at it herself. And she feels confident now with this young woman. And it's a DNC. What is a DNC? Um, DNC stands for dilation and curatage. It's um, uh, a method of performing abortion whereby the neck of the uterus, uh, the cervix, which is a tight muscle, is uh, stretched, dilated. And then curette, which is a, um, um, a hollow spoon-shaped, long-handled instrument, is used along with small um, oval-shaped uh, forceps to remove uh, the fetus and placenta, and uh, the curette is used to scrape the walls of the uh, uterus clean. Um, at that point, the uterus begins to contract and uh, become firm, and the abortion is complete. So why don't you say the beginning down there, the sentence that begins there. Okay. Okay, let me just say that Jenny had been an apprentice, uh, apprenticing herself to Nick, and she had done uh, bit, you know, uh, parts of abortions, and he had always stood by her, and, um, uh, and this sort of uh, incident happened almost by chance. This was Jenny's first solo DNC abortion without Nick standing by, and it was not going to be a simple one. As the pregnancy advances, the muscular wall of the uterus gradually thins as it stretches, and that increases the possibility of excessive bleeding or puncture during an abortion. Nick regularly performed DNCs at this stage without problem. Jenny knew she had to be extra careful. As she proceeded, she coached herself silently. Okay, be cool. Reach in with the forceps, explore the uterine wall for material, gently twist to make sure it's loose. Now pull the forceps through the cervix. When she was about three-quarters through, there was a small gush of blood. She picked up the curette. Now scrape the placenta down off the wall so the bleeding stops. 
When the bleeding subsided, Jenny switched back to the forceps and then returned to the curette to make sure the wall was clean. She could feel the woman's uterus contract and become firm. When she removed the speculum and said, there, all done, the room exploded in excitement. There was a gleam in Jenny's eyes. This is very dramatic, yeah. Yeah, do you want me to go on? One more paragraph. Okay. There was a gleam in Jenny's eye while she was concentrating on the abortion. If she could handle a complicated one on her own, she could handle any abortion. Very soon, they were not going to be dependent on anyone but themselves. But her elation had a somber edge. Independence meant that they would not be shielded from the consequences of performing abortions. But now that she had the skills, she was going to use them. From that day on, without mentioning to Nick what she was doing, she performed a, a few DNC abortions each Thursday, along with induced miscarriages. The service was rapidly moving toward a time when it, when it would fulfill her original dream to work on a project that was strictly for women, by women, and at the will of women. That was, if anybody, we could do it ourselves. Now, how many were able to do what Jenny did of the group? Um, in total, let me think. At any one time, there were no more than four women trained out of 25 to 30 members. Um, I have to add up quickly in my head. Maybe seven yeah. or eight, not very many. Yeah, but nonetheless, what a, I imagine it was a <laughs> thrilling moment. I did it. <laughs> and yeah. they can do it. Right. Is it different from, from midwifery? Uh, well, midwifery is basically assisting at a birth. Is what? Assisting at a birth. Oh, right. Yeah, this is it's funny. So, so it's the obverse of it. it in a be. way, in a way. Yeah. It's different. So, uh, because uh, being a midwife, you're not performing yeah. any surgical tasks, whereas a DNC is So surgery. this is the group that went on. And finally came Roe versus Wade. Now, what was the reaction of Jane when the decision came forth? Well, our overwhelming feeling was one of utter relief. Um, we had had a mission, and that mission was to help women get safe abortions. We had fulfilled our mission. Um, now that abortion was legal, we wouldn't have to risk their lives or our own. And so our overwhelming feeling was one of relief. But I have to say that that was tinged with a little worry and concern because we had tried to use the abortion as an educational experience, and we had tried to perform provide abortions in a way that was rather unique from other medical uh, procedures and experiences so that women were included, they were talking to us, they were part of the experience, they didn't feel like something was being done to them, which is the way you generally feel when you go so in for medical care. The group finally disbanded. There was no further right. need for it now since abortion is legal. And there was a great farewell party, of course, right. with that number, 6433844, right. became the basis of a song. This is the story of Jane. Uh, there's talk about the see, been erosion of the effects of Roe versus Wade. Your thoughts as an observer now of the scene? Well, I think um, what we have witnessed, and this is since the Hyde Amendment, which banned federal Medicaid dollars for abortions. The Hyde Amendment, that's of Henry Hyde of, uh, of Cicero oh, around Chicago. Henry Hyde says what? There'll be no... Federal Medicaid dollars used for abortion, and that was passed um, in 1977. And since that time, um, I think only 17 states still provide state Medicaid dollars for poor women's abortions. So 
uh, from that time on, and certainly Illinois wasn't one of them, I should say, um, the women who primarily use Jane services, who are poor women, um, young women, and women without money or resources of their own, um, were in effect barred from uh, abortion services in many, many states and regions of this country. Also, um, something like 83% of counties no longer provide abortion services. That So for a majority of women in rural areas, um, I don't know that things are much different than they were before Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So that's a, what are your thoughts now? You and you run into your colleagues now and then, former colleagues? I, um, through working on this book, I've gotten back in touch yeah. with anybody. This you call everybody. it, in a way, this is a collective memoir. You, you, you visited a good number of them, revisited, right. uh, to do the book. Right, right. And I tried, I wanted to write it, I mean, and of course it was going to be from my perspective, but I wanted to, inc to include as much from as many women's uh, own voices and own points of view as I could to get them to really tell their own stories. And that's what I tried to do in the story. I hope I was successful. I love this phrase at the end. The service embodied a shift, talking about Jane history, a shift in consciousness from asking for something to doing it ourselves. Deborah, one of your fellow members, told me that she tries to convey to her students, she's a teacher now, mm -hmm. that if a thing needs to be done, we can do it, figure it out, step by step. We in Jane learn that social change is not a gift given by leaders and heroes, but is accomplished by ordinary people working together. We make it happen by what we choose to do. And that's pretty much what this book is about, isn't it? Yes. It's over and beyond the story of Jane, isn't it? Yes, I hope it has more universal applications that people will read it and be able to relate to their own experience in their own lives. It's almost a metaphor for other things. Any uh, base we haven't touched you feel like hitting? We got it. Laura Kaplan, thank you very much. The story of Jane, subtitle, Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service, Pantheon Publishers, and, and available. Thank you. Thank you, Studs.